I'm looking for the gold star. Hey, go. All right. So I was originally going to call this, uh, what's the deal with decaf? Um, but I never know the answer to those. I'm still waiting to find out what the deal is with airplane food. Because I mean, we all eat it. It's served to us. It would be rude not to take it. So um, otherwise, it's called total decaffeinated solids. Ta-da. Um, so what we're going to talk about is coffee solids. We sort of know why they matter for regular coffee. We sort of know why they matter for decaf. We'll go over the whole thing again anyway. Um, it's funny working in decaf. I never thought I was going to be a decaffeinator. I worked for roasting companies for a while and uh, ended up working in a decaf company. And Working in decaf is exactly like working in regular coffee. We're sort of the advocates for farmers, for everybody in the supply chain, for us as uh, processors, for roasters, and especially for the coffee drinker. It's important for us to remember that people who are decaf drinkers are drinking coffee for the taste of coffee. They're not in there in the morning because they need a jolt to get going. Um, and it's very often that Decaf isn't traded with the same uh, care that regular coffee is. You see the hopper in the morning in the grinder and nobody opened up the chute. It's not quite dialed in. You don't see it on the menu that somebody actually has decaf. Um, but these are the people who are actually coming in to get coffee because they really want to drink coffee. They want to hang out in your cafe. They want to work there. They want to socialize, whatever. Um, and so a lot of what we have to do as decaffeinators and then as coffee professionals is to be the advocate for those people. Um, most often, like I said, decaf isn't treated as well. And hopefully what we're going to talk about is how you can treat it better and then how you can sell more decaf, which then trickles down. Then you are supporting your farmers more. You're buying more coffee. The supply chain is strengthened all because of decaf. Um, so starting from the beginning and this is going to look a lot like a brewing presentation uh it'll look exactly like a brewing presentation um, so coffee solids are what we're looking for that's what we drink that's what we extract from the bean and we put into the water until we start just eating the beans this is going to be important um, so a typical arabica bean uh, has about 26 percent of soluble solids and soluble just means that it can be extracted in water. Real simple. Uh, the rest of it, that 74%, are insoluble solids, which might come out in brewing, depending on your filtration method. Uh, caffeine makes up about 1.2% of those soluble solids. So caffeine just is uh, dissolved in water, comes out into your coffee. It's at such a small percentage that even though caffeine is a bitter substance itself, you're not getting a bitter taste from caffeine. So when you decaffeinate, you're not ending up with this uh, illustrious sweet coffee because you got rid of 1.2% because it really didn't matter. 
Uh, so after decaffeination, after you take out that approximately 1.2%, you're left with about 24% of soluble solids. More insoluble solids than you started with because you took stuff out. And you end up taking out more than just your caffeine. The decaffeination process in general works the same for every decaffeination. You have to clean your coffee very well. Uh, so you'll do a cleaning process to remove dust, sticks, stones, debris. You do a polishing, like uh, an origin polishing to remove the silver skin. Um, you'll often clean it multiple times after that as well. So the whole process is removing soluble solids. So you end up taking out more than just caffeine. like that. You also have the potential to remove flavor-soluble solids. So in decaffeination, we have to recognize that we're processing coffee. What are the, the things that you never want to do to your coffee? Expose it to temperature, expose it to water, expose it to air. And we have to do that. We can't decaffeinate without doing those things. So as decaffeinators, we want to do as little of that as possible to make sure that we're not over-processing the coffee. We don't have to over-decaffeinate it. We just have to take out as much caffeine as we're supposed to. Once you over-process, you're, har you're harming the beans more. And so what ends up happening um, while the process is going on is you soak the beans, whether in steam or in water, but you need to soak them so that it's easier to remove the caffeine. It's all based on processing less so that you're harming your coffee less. So you soak your beans up, they take on a, bu a bunch of moisture, and then you have some medium that removes your caffeine. Some of them are at atmospheric pressure, some decaffeination methods are at elevated pressure, uh, but no matter what, you're gonna have some elevated temperatures, you're gonna have some elevated pressures maybe, you're gonna maybe have some elevated oxygen environments. Um, and those are gonna do something to the bean. What they do to the bean is different for every decaffeination process. Uh, so I, I'm not gonna say what happens to those. And this whole presentation seems a bit wishy-washy uh, because I'm not saying how to do anything. The whole point is think about how you wanna do something different. If you wanna evaluate and not do something different, that's totally fine, but at least be aware that you might wanna be doing something different. So um, because all the different processes work different ways and even within one process, different uh, decaffeinators will have their own little tricks and little things that they do differently, you're potentially changing your density of the bean, uh, and you're most likely changing your cell structure. Because of that introduction of pressure, that introduction of temperature, that introduction of oxygen, something's gonna happen in there. Uh, and if you've roasted decaf before, or if you've ground decaf before, if you've brewed decaf before, you'll notice that it doesn't work exactly the same way. Um, what I want to focus on is brewing decaf. So, um, this is where it starts to look like a brewing presentation. This here is the coffee brewing uh, control chart. A lot of us have seen it before, um, but just to recap, on the left-hand side is the strength or your solubles concentration. The bottom is the solubles yield or your extraction. Um, you can figure out your brewing ratio on the side. In the center, I call it the tasty square, because that's where coffee is tasty. Uh, and that seems to be the big popular word at this conference for when coffee tastes good, it's just tasty coffee. And that's what we all want to hit. 
Who doesn't like tasty coffee? Um, the question of whether or not this is still valid or is the research still accurate, totally different. I know there's some uh, research going on at this conference about that. I'm not going to talk about that. But based on uh, the previous history, the optimum range of concentration for filtered coffee is somewhere between 1.15 and 1.35%. Um, and we are, with coffee, trying to extract about 18 to 22% of the soluble solids that are available. But what happens with decaf, right? And why is it different? Just to get into this a little bit more so that we're talking the same language, strength is the amount of flavoring material that gets out of the bean and into your final coffee. Really, how much of that, what percentage of your bean is ending up in a cup of coffee? And there's a lot that goes into affecting that. The extraction um, is the amount of the flavoring material or the soluble solids that get into there. So the big question and what, I, what I'm trying to extend out for as long as possible is with fewer available solids, is it important to hit the same TDS, the same total dissolved solids, uh, and the same extraction percentage? Because um, if you start out with less, do you really want to end up with the same thing? Um, a lot of us know what over-extracted coffee tastes like. You start extracting solids that aren't pleasant, bitter solids, uh, really biting solids, affect the body, affect the flavor, affect the acidity. Um, and do we really want that? Most people say no, uh, and we're sort of in agreement on regular coffee that we don't want over-extracted coffee. So we need to figure out what is over-extracted decaf. Um, getting into how you get over-extracted or under-extracted coffee, we need to get back into what does it mean to brew coffee. The three main stages are wetting, extraction, and hydrolysis. So wetting is really just preparing coffee grounds for extraction. It's like a pre-infusion on a, an espresso machine. Some people call it blooming, whatever you want to call. You're, um, you're just trying to prepare the beans so that they will more evenly and more easily extract coffee without having to really overwork them. Um, and so then during the extraction stage, that's when you're extracting the soluble compounds and this is really when the majority of getting soluble solids out of the bean and into the water is happening. Um, so um, sugars are turned into proteins, or sugars are turned into more simple sugars that you're going to taste. Some proteins are created. And this is really where a lot of the extraction and flavor happens. Now hydrolysis is a really interesting one. And this is a big question mark with decaf. Um, because hydrolysis is the chemical reaction in which compounds are broken down and then new compounds are created. Because we're affecting change on the beans and on the oils, fats, everything that's in this bean, we aren't necessarily sure what's going to happen in hydrolysis because we don't know exactly which compounds were in the beans before and which, bean, which compounds are in the beans afterward. So there's a really big potential for this hydrolysis stage to be changed um, with decaffeinated coffee. The other things that might happen, wetting, because your density has changed with decaffeinated coffee, 
you're potentially going to wet it more easily and you might not need to bloom for as long. Or maybe you ended up with a decaf that has a higher density and you need to wet it for longer. You know, it, it's all up in the air. It all depends on a lot of different stuff. Um, but those are the three main stages. Breaking it down a little bit more. Um, how are we going to control those different stages? Time, temperature, bed depth, agitation, grind size. Uh, we could talk for hours and hours about each of these different subjects. Um, but I want to get back to just the question of, do we want the same target? Do we want to extract 18 to 22% of what's in that bean? Knowing that we removed at least 2%, possibly 5%. So say we're starting out at 21% of soluble solids. Do we want to extract 22% of what's in that bean? No, because we can't. Um, so it's probably better to look at your extraction ratio. But the question that comes to my mind always is, do people want a certain taste of coffee or do they want a certain feel of coffee? Um, so then I get into this question and pondering and my mind just goes off in daydreams about, do I really want to get my extraction to have the same body as regular coffee? Or do I want to get the same sort of taste profile as regular coffee? And that's up to each of us. Um, and that's what's going to come out in your extraction time. Because if you want to extract certain soluble solids, you could go for a longer extraction uh, with low pressure. You could go for a short extraction with high pressure, putting sort of coarser ground coffee through an espresso machine or doing it in AeroPress, some sort of low pressure environment. Temperature-wise, um, it's kind of accepted that higher temperatures will extract soluble solids more effectively and faster. Um, but maybe if we're using too high of a temperature, we're extracting the soluble solids that are in there that are giving us negative flavors. So we could potentially extract a higher amount of soluble solids, but change which soluble solids we're extracting by controlling our temperature that's in there. Um, bed depth, that's a huge question mark. I mean, which of us really feels in control of our bed depth? Um, why it's important is because it, it affects uh, contact time, especially after the bloom. It affects how fast you're going to start your extraction in your hydrolysis. Um, but I'm not going to focus on bed depth at all. Agitation is a really interesting one um, because agitation definitely happens in the decaffeination process. Um, that's whether water's running across beans, whether you're having a high pressure environment. Agitation will. Uh, really, really, really increase your ability to extract soluble solids. Do you want to do it? I don't know. Do you not want to? I don't know. It's up to you. You know, so it's, it's really a question of figuring out which soluble solids you're extracting at which point in your brew cycle and which ones do you want to emphasize. A great way to do that is start your brew cycle into one cup, move that cup aside, put it into another cup, move it aside, put it into another cup you taste your extraction broken down. And a lot of us have done that with regular coffee, but how many of us have done that with our decaf? Probably not many. I mean, I don't, I don't want to ask how many people actually taste their decaf, because I don't like to think about that so much, um, because I see how many grinder shoots are still closed in the morning. Um, but this agitation, uh, I think, is really important with filter brewing. Uh, filter brewing of a decaf is a completely different story. Um, so many cafes that I go into, they'll offer decaf just as espresso. 
uh, but not really as a filter coffee option. I sometimes like to drink filter coffee, I often do, I, and sometimes I want to filter coffee decaf. Um, so it's a nice thing to offer, and if you're trying to get more decaf out your doors, it's a great way to do it. Um, grind size is a great topic with decaf. Um, again, because you're affecting change on the beans, you're affecting change on the density of them, you're affecting cell structure change, potentially. So then what happens in grinding? Um, we know what happens with the difference between sort of light roasted coffee and dark roasted coffee. Dark roasted coffee is often less dense. It'll shatter more in a grinder. Um, and potentially if your decaf comes out less dense or if you sent a less coffee, a less dense coffee to be decaffeinated, you need to expect to change your grind size or your grinding profile. If you want to keep a consistent grind profile, you need to have some way to evaluate it. It's great to have some sort of uh, shaking sieves or a laser particle analyzer. I have one of those at home. I assume everyone does. Um, I use it mostly for my cereal, but occasionally for my coffee. Um, but so if you grind your regular and your decaf on the same setting on your grinder, chances are your decaf is going to have a smaller particle size uh, with the distribution shifted down the scale. Um, so what I recommend often uh, is if you can't really evaluate it with shaking sieves or an analyzer, just coarsen it up a little bit. Chances are that's going to happen. Um, thinking about espresso brewing, in general we find that uh, conical burrs do a little bit better of a job of slicing beans and not so much of the crushing and pulverizing of the beans. So counter to what everyone does in cafes where they have the conical burrs for their regular flat burrs for their decaf, you could potentially be having a more consistent, more even uh, grind of your decaf with a conical burr rather than your flat burr. So just flip them around. You know, give the decaf the rober and, you know, give the mini to <laughs> your regular coffee that you use a lot more of. Um, but yeah, uh, or just get roller mills because they're great. Uh, but when I worked in roasting companies and I, w I did quality control in roasting companies and I would have to set up how are we going to grind these coffees? And consistently, I would have, for the same roast level, we would have to grind coarser on a decaf to make sure that we're getting that consistent grind size distribution. Um, and you know, it's not something that we think about often with espresso preparation. Uh, most people only sieve their coffees with espresso or with filter and think about it. Um, because it's just on the fly, you, you change your color, you change your grind size on espresso. Um, but it's something just to think about uh, and play around with with your, with your decaf espresso is what kind of grind size are you going to be using on there? So, one topic that came up often, this is a late addition just from conversations that I was having this weekend and that I have often and I should have put it in here, um, is what do you do to increase your quality of decaf? So you're, you're working on your grind size, you're grinding better, you figured out your bed depth, you're the first person ever to figure it out, you just nailed that bed depth, it's like a Sealy Posturepedic, it's fluffy on top, it's firm in the middle, you got your perfect bed depth, you're brewing your decaf, it's awesome, but you don't have any decaf customers. So what it all, what's it all worth? Um, and what we do as a company, as other decaffeinators do as well, is we have to promote decaf. Uh, if your decaf isn't on your menu, 
people probably aren't going to know that they're supposed to order your decaf. If you have it listed as like, you got your soy milk, you got your mocha sauce, you got your decaf, and decaffeination costs money. Uh, our company does something to the beans. What it is, I have no idea. But we do something, we charge people for it. Uh, so you have to charge more for your decaf. But if you just say decaf, extra 50, you know, people don't know too much about it. If you have every coffee listed where the farm is, what region it is, what the farm name is, who the farmer is, all that type of information on your regular coffee, and then your decaf is like house blend, you're probably not going to sell as much of it. Um, and it's a really important thing because you're stuck. If you have the luxury of having a decaf grinder on your bar, so many people end up using more decaf to dial in their grind than they serve in a day. And that's a horrible problem. I mean, although it's using decaf coffee and uh, it's trickling down the supply chain, like I said before, that's great. Uh, but we want to sell more decaf. We want to sell more coffee. You want to sell more coffee. Um, so promote that just like you would promote any other coffee. Remind people that you actually have it. And don't necessarily order it just as, fill, as espresso, but have that filter option of decaf as well. Um, so getting to the end, sadly, decaffeinated coffee is still coffee. Uh, I, did, I didn't want to start out with a big joke because decaf isn't a joke. Um, it really is for the people that want to drink coffee. It has been processed, sure. But so's every coffee. It's already been put in one tank of water. I mean, people are talking about like multiple fermentation tanks. That's not coffee. Decaf, that's what I'm talking about. Uh, it's still coffee. We buy coffee just like everybody. We process coffee. We process great coffee. Um, and decaf can taste great. You just have to pay a little bit of attention to it. When you're brewing, Use the same principles as you do for brewing your regular coffee, but actually think about it for your decaf. Don't just say, yeah, it's going to be exactly the same. If you work every morning to dial in different uh, brew methods and you have your different uh, brew ratios for your different coffees, your different brew methods, try it for your decaf. Figure out how it's going to taste best so that your customers can be the most happy. Um, and the big question of, do you want to have the same extracted total dissolved solids when you're starting out with less solids available to be dissolved? And that's total decaffeinated solids. Thank you. Yeah, oh, there you Thank go. You. Brilliant. Thank you. So um, I've seen Mike at these shows for five, six years, I've been coming along with you and seeing you there. I didn't realize he could talk <laughs> because he's normally head judge and he's normally there writing stuff down and just smiling. And then I was lucky enough to be invited to Canada to uh, give a presentation uh, in Calgary. And Mike was also invited. And um, I just sat there with my mouth open going, this is brilliant. Like, and at that moment, I, in my head, I mean, Mike is going to be on the next Tampa Tantrum. Like, that's it, it's decided. And um, I hope you can see why now. I think, you like, I love your presentation Thank style. You. I'm just, I just sat there smiling. I had one of those moments there when you, you got to the brew control chart and you went, so this is a brew chart. And then I went, oh, God. And I just, <laughs> just had this moment. It's like, I'm an idiot. Like, this is, 
I never thought of like how you explain it. There's already stuff that's left to co uh, copy, and you shouldn't necessarily look for the same target. This is this is bizarre though, because Daryl was sitting next to me, who's my wholesale director, and he had a wholesale customer emailing last week saying, "So this decaf, should I be brewing it this way?" When it, and it was like, and and he didn't know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The answer is no. <laughs> so, how many coffee shops do you feel are are nailing decaf? In Vancouver, where I go to coffee shops, a lot of them. Yeah, they're, they're always really happy to see me and they give me shots of decaf. And the story that I hear most is, oh, yeah, you know, my coworker wanted a, an espresso. So I gave him a decaf and they're like, oh, this is great. But I didn't tell him it was decaf. Oh, this is great. Yeah. Oh, it's decaf. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the Brewers Cup in Hungary this year, um, Tibor won using a decaf yeah. and didn't tell the judges. It's interesting, though, because I think like we try to get people to do filter coffee. It's not, it's not really the done thing in Ireland. And you, you talk to coffee bars about doing it, and they say, oh, you're going to do it. And then you go back to a few weeks later, and we say, how's it going? They go, oh, nobody wants it. It's really awful. I'm like, where's your equipment? And they're like, oh, it's out the back. And why is it on the menu? Oh, it's not there. And then when you were talking about the decaf and how, it isn't, uh, how people don't put it on the menu, it's, it's exactly the same thing. How frustrating is that for you? <laughs> I don't take it personally. Um, but we really do try and help people sell decaf through their doors um, because it, it I really do believe that it helps everyone in the supply chain um, and it's really something that it's lost it's lost sales for you it's lost revenue it's lost happy customers um, so you know it's it's too bad that these people don't know that it's an option cafes that have great decafs but don't offer it as filter you know, you might just, maybe you're missing out on one person a day, but it's one person a day that loves your coffee that's then going to tell their friends. But sometimes that one person has three friends with them and they're like, oh, we can't go there because they don't do decaf. So, yeah. so I, I, I'm not texting, I am looking at my notes that I kept. And <laughs> it's, we've had this conversation before, but I think it's an interesting, an interesting one to put out there. Selecting green coffee for decaffeination. Mm -hmm. Can you just stick anything through and it'll all work? Or do you really have to carefully select, have an idea of a profile that's going to decaffeinate well? We don't, we don't focus on um, a specific profile that will decaffeinate well. We have our offerings that have specific player profiles that we want to hit, or a seasonal offering that has a specific profile or a blend that needs certain components. We just buy like a roaster would. But is there something that you think, like, you know he's going to decaf super well. He's going to be like tasting amazing, and you really look forward to that season coming round. Um, from my own offerings, yeah, yeah, I was really excited yeah, when. Yeah, yeah, I want to know the best yeah. decafs. No, uh, our um, our Guatemala harvest is always very exciting for me. Um, the Costa Ricas were super sweet this year. I, I, I agree about Guatemala for sure. I've said, like, a lot of the great decafs I've had have come from Guatemala. Um, and, I, and I don't know why. Is there a reason for that? Is there a higher... I mean, I'm guessing there's a higher density in Guatemalan beans that maybe is, is that grinding issue? They're grinding better? Or? Yeah, maybe. I mean, higher density might be harder. In some ways, it's harder to decaffeinate. Um, so a lot of times people won't want to send that. <laughs> but Guatemala strikes a nice balance of value and flavor. Um, 
So that might be it. I'm sure know. Raul will be pleased to hear that. Yeah, <laughs> it's the value. So, what is a what is the future for decaf? Like, is there? I I I heard somewhere. I don't even know if this is probably true, but that there was they're they're working and trying to like genetically grow plants that will be decaffeinated mm. arabica. Is that is that true, or where do you see the future for decaffeinated coffee? I've definitely seen some uh, natural mutations of arabica that have lower caffeine. Um, none that are in large commercial production that anybody could get enough of a hold of to make worthwhile. Um, there was that lot in the Maresh auction recently, wasn't yeah. there, which was the it's 20, 20 pounds of it. Yeah, and 20 it pounds. Like, yeah, 20 pounds <laughs> in the world, and he went for $110 a pound. Yeah. Yeah. I was in it right up until 100, and I was like, no, I'm not playing that game anymore. Then it's I a bit excessive. I just thought it'd be funny. Like, what am I going to do with 20 pounds of coffee? Yeah. <laughs> How do I market that? Um, How long I mean, before it, you see like a, a WVC competitor with, with, with decaf? This is the question. I think the future of decaf is traceability. Um, that's what everybody's moving toward. I, I think the single cup brewing in cafes has really opened up um, an almost unlimited potential for decaf. Before, with line item pricing, and your cup of coffee had to be 250. There's decaf processing fees, and then you had to buy green coffee that was that much less before decaffeination. But now when you can charge 30 cents more per cup for a decaf or 50 cents more, however much you want, you can buy just as nice decaf as your regular coffee. You can know exactly where it comes from. You can buy micro lot decaf. And lots of people know that you guys to also toll decaf, don't you? So you can just, you can buy your lot and send it in and it doesn't have to come from you, you can decaf for people. Which yeah, a great thing is having the same coffee as regular and decaf, or if one year you have it as regular, next harvest you decaffeinate it. Your customers are used to it, they know it, they're excited when that coffee comes back in. Uh, we, we've done that this year because we, we wanted to buy an entire production from the farm, yeah. and it was too much for us to buy normally. So we bought the production and half was decapped and half is, is, is you know, we're selling regular. And it's an interesting comparison. They're, they're always very different, um, but they're always, you know, they're like the, the, the ones that we have, they're, they're super tasty. Um, and people forget that it can be tasty. It just takes a little bit more work because you're not using it as much and, you know, yeah. uh, and, and all of those things. One thing I am interested on, we're changing the cellular structure and we're taking things away. How does that affect the life of the green? So the life of the green coffee, have you done any experiments or any anecdotal stuff that... Yeah, we taste decaf as it ages. Um, because we've been doing the things you're not supposed to do to coffee, uh, it will age faster. Um, and it's a great thing to be aware of because um, you think about seasonality and you want to decaffeinate coffees that are fresh out of harvest or at least still tasting awesome. And then you have to think about how long has it been since it was decaffeinated? How long did it take to get to me from that decaffeinator? How long was it held in a warehouse? Um, and then be, because it's, it's aging faster as green, it then ages faster as regular coffee. Um, so if you age your regular espresso for eight days, you don't need to age your decaf for eight days. You could probably put it in the hopper after two days. Um, and if you aren't going through a full hopper of decaf in a day, don't package in like a two kilo package. Just put it in a wee little package, keep it fresher longer, because yeah, it definitely will uh, degrade a little bit faster than regular coffee. I, th I think this is the thing that frustrates me about the decaf stuff is that people say, oh, decaf, it's horrible. 
but it's horrible because what importers have done for years is gone, oh gosh, we haven't sold this coffee and it's 14 months old, let's send it for decaffeination. And it was already old, and then they sit on it for another 12 months because they don't sell much decaf. And when it gets to, to bars and coffee shops, it's like what I see a lot of time in coffee shops is, yeah, the decaf's not very good, it doesn't sell very well. And it's like, you ground that last Tuesday, put it into a little Tupperware box, <laughs> and you spoon some into a porter filter, press any old button, and then you give out because it's not very good. So and we, we, um, we didn't do decaf for a long time, and then we, uh, about six months ago, decided to embrace it. Because I, I, I kept badgering you about yeah. it. Like, I do see it as a missed opportunity in a coffee shop not doing decaf. Yeah. It's like, why, why would you want to turn those customers away? Like you said, with their friends coming in, who are all going to drink... You know, why do you want to lose that business? But initially, it didn't sell. We were like, oh, we were right. It doesn't sell. Nobody wants it. And then it was like, well, it's not on our menu. So we put it on <laughs> our menu, and we got a new menu board up and put decaf there, put the farm name beside it. It's selling now. Yeah. It's taken a lot of time to change people. A lot of people weren't coming because they thought we didn't do it, but it's getting to the stage now where but, it's starting to But when you open off. the doors to your store, people don't come in and buy coffee straight away because they have to get used to that routine. And I think people just don't give these things long enough either. It's like... Well, I had it on the menu for a week, you know, but, but for the past two years, nobody knew you had it. And, you know, so I think it is a long, long thing, but it just, I don't know. I, I, I don't like the, the way that it just, it is stuff in that Tupperware box is, is not a good thing. So outside of decaffeination, you also have a big role in the WCE. So tell us a little bit about that, how long you've been involved and, and what you do. Um, I've been mostly involved in the barista competition until this year. I got certified as a judge for Coffee and Good Spirits and Brewers Cup. Um, I, I'm on the competitions committee in the US as well as in Canada, acting as head judging and uh, helping to train judges and plan stuff. And so with the WBC and all the WC competitions, I'm doing quite a lot of that. This was my third year judging at the World Barista Championship. Um, which is fantastic. It's it's always such a, a humbling experience to be on the world level. I'm sure it is as a competitor. I never made it that far, um, but I made it to the championships as a judge. Um, but it's, it's, it feels the same way. It's so large and it, it really feels big. Yeah. We've, we've spoken a lot uh, with Carl Sauer this morning and with, with some of the other speakers this week. Like, uh, how do you feel that standard judging has risen every year? Like. From, from my perspective, I think every time I go back, it's, it's incredible. I was saying to Carl this morning about how I'd ask one judge a question and all four of them would say the same answer at the same time. It was like, oh, you know, you can finish. So, like, it's difficult, isn't it? Yeah, to, to, to be certified and be judging in the WBC, you, there's, there aren't that many of us that are doing it. It's pretty tough. It's a big time commitment. Um, because the understanding what the larger spectrum is and, and stepping out of line by line what the rules say and understanding sort of the spirit of why we do it and taking a broad understanding of what's happening in the competition. Um, the people who started the competition can do it, but it took a really long time to be able to train everyone else to take those interpretations of the rules. Um, and so by training by the WCE, training in the national bodies, it's taken a while, but I think there's a good momentum and judges are really taking a great approach to it. And we're getting people who used to be competitors, people who uh, have watched competitions for a long time coming in and having a great uh, attitude and perspective on judging. I, I think it's also important out how, like how judges seem to kind of be getting something from it now as well. Whereas in the past, I don't, I kind of looked and I looked at judges as the referees of the football. Like, why do you do that job? 
like everybody's saying that you're rubbish, you know, and like giving out because they didn't win the competition or whatever, and you're giving up your time for free. Whereas now, I think judging gives you uh, a respectability, but also like it gives you tools to take back into your businesses. Oh, yeah. now, you know, it's like it's, it's, it's something that's important and, and useful. Oh yeah, if you want to stay on the forefront of what's happening in espresso preparation, you should be there. So we all want to. We want to bring that back home, you know, to help out with competitions in the U.S. and Canada. I need to know these things. So uh, <laughs> one thing that was was a little contentious that we spoke about earlier on the week with um, uh, Jordan from Sprudge was that uh, I, you can plead the fifth on this one if you want. But to me, the the standard of the USBC is astounding. Like I was saying to Jordan, I don't understand why more. Uh, American, especially coffee people, aren't insisting that there are more spaces for American <laughs> competitors at WBC. That it should be weighted like maybe two, three competitors. Because when I look at the USBC, it's just it's incredible. So we understand your position might be slightly compromised here, but you, how do, like the the standard at USBC, the standard at WBC, it's definitely comparable anyway. If not, I don't know. Some people would say it's, it's the USBC is even better standard. We take them pretty seriously in the U.S., um, but a big component of the competitions, I still believe, is training and education. Um, and I think we would lose a big focus of what we can do to help raise coffee worldwide if we just focused on those top five competitors. You know, it, we wouldn't I, have I, these I, new I, countries coming up and learning and raising up from being 40th place into fifth place if we I, gave 10 spots to... UK and That's the US. Well, like, but I remember seeing like the Nicaraguan barista champion this year. Like when he was coming out and setting up, setting up on the stage, he was just like, you know, he, what you're going to take his place away so somebody else from the US can, you know, it's like he took so much away from that. Yeah, I we, saw him at the party on, on the on the evening, and he was just like, we had a Indonesia for the first time in ten years or something, I think, uh, which is incredible when you think about a country that produces so much coffee that they, we haven't had a barista champion from Indonesia in so long. But so, he, uh, he was amazing as well. Like he was so excited to be there, and all of you. I'd been talking to his, his uh, coaching team for a while because we'd just been firing emails backwards and forwards. And when I walked in, like all three of them came over, and I was like being hugged by three people I'd never met, and like because they were just excited to be there. It's it's a it's a great thing. So I, I agree in lots of ways. You know, but actually the USBC is a big deal anyway. So like competing in that is a great opportunity for those baristas. But. Uh, uh, how big do you think competition can get? I don't know. I guess as big as we let it. I, I, th I think that it's an arena that can get a lot bigger, but we need to have more structure, more people organizing, more judges, uh, more sponsors. I think there's a lot of people that want to compete, but we honestly can't handle that many more as it is. You know, the USBC is a four-day competition now. It's as long as the WBC and more people that are in the WBC. So to add another 50 competitors, and I, it's already like eight days of <laughs> my life judging yeah. this one barista competition. I, you know, I guess what's another couple more at that point? <laughs> do, you, do you see um, a competitiveness amongst the judges? Uh, they all want to take me down. I'm number one judge. <laughs> I remind them of that as well. <laughs> um, no. It... We all just, well, I try and do my best. Um, and 
I don't think that there's a competitiveness because those of us that move up and become as good of judges as we can start giving back. You know, uh, it's that we then step away from being judges that are actually scoring to training judges and being head judges. Um, so, is there competition amongst them? I'm sure, uh, but I think I saw for the first time this year for like because I've been much more, you know, on the stage with the judges like and around it. There's a, there's a definite camaraderie there between the judges that is yeah. like. And, 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 but there's also, and Carl mentioned it earlier, there's this new level of professionalism that seems to have come into judging as well, which is, which is needed, you know. Go back to what you said about eating at the table, actually the rule went to the, in 2003 that judges couldn't eat at the table, because some guy took his lunch up. <laughs> it's amazing to see how far it's come again. Yeah. One time I got served lunch at the table. It was a delicious lamb chop. It was killer. <laughs> Is that the craziest thing with food? I don't think that was the craziest. It was just delicious. The competitor cooked something for each course. Yeah. It was great. There was an appetizer, the main course, and some cookies for dessert. It's great. So actually, that's, that's a good. What is the craziest thing that's happened at competition? Oh man. There must be some stories, particularly from, I think USBC, you know, there's so, there's so many rounds that we, we don't get to see, you know, because the regionals and the lots of people streaming. I don't know. I've seen, uh, what popped into my head was I saw this edible glass one time, and someone made a, it was like a wine glass made out of uh, hard sugar, and they served the drink in that and the judges could eat it. It was insane. There was a, I don't know if this is true, but there's a story about a competitor in the UK, I think in Northern Ireland, who uh, passed two tomatoes, hollowed them out, pulled shots into them and served them, and then judges had to drink out of the half tomatoes. So. Yeah, I think that was a thing. Was that you, Steve, maybe? <laughs> it was probably a Kenyan coffee, huh? Yeah, maybe, maybe. Um, so, you know this better than anybody that we, we normally get up. Oh, we've got a round of applause for the sponsors, and that really sucks and we hate it. So what Breville, our sponsors have done this year, instead of making us pack them, have asked their customers uh, on TTLD hashtag questions for the experts. So we have a lovely little ident for it as well. You are our expert. So our first question is, does specialty coffee need caffeine in order to be specialty? And that's Amy Micklin from Canada. Micard? We take the approach of specialty coffee as 80 points and above. You can certainly get coffees without caffeine that score above 80 points. I mean, I, I really think that you can produce decaf that tastes the same way that the coffee was before decaffeination. It's specialty coffee before, it's specialty coffee after. Good question. Good question, good answer. I read somewhere that someone is trying to genetically modify coffee so that it's grown as a decaf. Is this true? If so, what are your thoughts on it? And that's Cathal O'Shea from Ireland. It's Cahill. 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 impressive. <laughs> More impression. Sorry. Um, what are my thoughts? I, it, I think that it's an interesting thing that could happen. It'll be a really long time until there's enough produced commercially to make a big impact. Because even though Lorena, um, they went for the really high price, it's only about 50% of 
of the caffeine of Arabica. There's still a bunch of caffeine in there. And in decaf, there's always some amount of caffeine in there. But for someone who's really sensitive to caffeine um, and can't handle it for medical reasons, they need to be sure that that happens. So at that point, when there's coming off the tree, you're still going to have to do lab tests and issue certificates of analysis. And I thought that was a really good point that you made earlier, that like, the people that are drinking decaf are they actually the people that just want to drink the taste of coffee, but it's not about the caffeine yet. So like, in, a, in a weird sort of way, they're probably the purists. They're just there just for the taste, and it's a good yeah. point to make. Have you, have you tasted the, uh, the uh, decaf, natural decaf coffee from Cortis? I didn't have the one from Nicaragua, but I had one from Colombia. It was amazing. No, and these were funny beans that were like oval. I cooked the Nicaraguans uh, 12 weeks ago um, when I was in Silver Park and it's really interesting. I, I, I was like, it was kind of a geisha like flavor. Yeah, yeah, really interesting. So that, that is a, a very good question. And does decaffeination become part of the provenance of the coffee? And that's oh. Kathy McDonald from the UK. And I that now because it's really It's an interesting question. Yeah, it depends on um, what you're talking about. For Import and export, yes. We'll say product of Canada, um, but we also list what country or countries the coffees came from. Um, and how how many names of decaffeinators do you guys know? Um, not the names, but the processes. Like uh, uh, my consumers insist on knowing. They yeah. are very like they do not want methylated chloride. Like they do not want MC at all. So I've got to tell them that it's not that. CO2, they're a little bit more, okay, but CO2, I'm saying, okay, it's this. If I say to the Swiss water, they think of really dancing goats, and uh, meadows, and flowers, they think that it's great. Yeah. Is it like that in the plant? <laughs> yeah, we have lots of clocks everywhere. Mostly cats. <laughs> um, so the provenance, I think the, the only way the provenance will make a difference is if people actually know what it is. So the responsibility is on me, and it's on you to explain to people either like which company is decaffeinating your coffee, where they're, where they're located, what process it is. But you have to make something meaningful to tell them. Or else what does it matter? You're just taking up word space on your label otherwise. Um, I do think that it's an important thing. In Canada, we have an interesting uh, labeling restriction. Or if you use any chemicals as a processing aid in your decaffeination, you have to say it on there. You don't have to say who's decaffeinating it, but you'll have to say, uh, Process with methylene chloride or something like that. Um, uh, people like to put that in a real small font, but there's there's no reason to hide who is decaffeinating your coffee. I mean, someone's doing it. That goes to the question. Now I have got one more question that kind of came to me halfway through these, which was ecological. We're all very kind of you know careful of pollution and, and all of these things. Take us through the Swiss water process from a from that point of view of like what waste products there are, what you're doing to make out better. Because I think it's an important question I get asked a lot about the coffee's like so so you know what happens? Where did the waste go? Where does the caffeine go? Yeah, so um, decaffeinators in general don't use that much energy and don't have that much waste. They're pretty much all closed systems with the only input really being heat. Um, so, you know, we have to clean the coffee, and then we got all this organic waste that we can compost, dust, um, silver skin, that kind of stuff. Our process happens under uh, an 
elevated temperature, so we have to put gas as an input. If you're putting it under high pressure, you probably have to put gas as an input. Um, so you're putting that in, but then you're not really having stuff that's coming out. Even if you use chemicals to process it, you're then refiltrating or refiltering so that you're then uh, reusing those same chemicals. The green coffee extract that we re that we use gets the caffeine removed and then we use it again. Um, so there's there's not a lot of inputs that need to go into decaffeination. For plants that can process their caffeine to sell it, they'll process the medium for decaffeination. I've got a byproduct of caffeine. They can sell that off and then it can be sold. We use a furnace and we put it out into the air. And it's not its not a balloon. Um, caffeine sublimates from solid into gas and just disappears. The birds are real happy, fly really fast. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but the, ecologically, we try and be as sound as possible. We don't use any chemicals in our process, um, but I do know that other decaffeinators um, using other processes, they, they want to minimize their inputs because it's best for their business and best ecologically. You have the same thing about producers not wanting to use chemicals in their land because they have to buy those chemicals. Yeah. And then they have to live there where they put the chemicals. It's, it's a really dumb thing to do, unless you have to. Yeah. And, so. and you asked why it's called the Swiss water yes. decaf. The process was invented in Switzerland. Okay. And it was actualized in Switzerland. No, uh, no, I invented it in Stafford four years ago. I better change the name. Yeah, it's the Stafford decaf coffee. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, yeah, I think a huge round of applause, please, for Mike Stuff, which was more to do that. <laughs>